Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. So today in the, in the church calendar is Palm Sunday. Um, it, uh, it leads up to the, the moment as a, as a church, universal worldwide church, where we m- commemorate and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the Sunday before that. Um, we, in, on Palm Sunday, we commemorate when Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphal entry into Jerusalem that led up to this death and resurrection moment. So, today is Palm Sunday. Um, I also am in school, and I have an assignment to preach out of Thessalonians. So, we're going from Palm Sunday passage to Thessalonians. I think we, we made a connection there, so you can let me know later. So, we are going to start in this passage where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And this passage is kind of well known because Jesus defies expectations in this passage. We'll see that when he, when he moves in, the crowd seems to have this vision of, for what's going to go down, what Jesus is going to be about when he enters Jerusalem. But Jesus defies that common sense expectation for what a king would be. Jesus creates a new example a new example that's worthy of imitation. So we're going to explore this idea of imitation this morning. Um, there's this show that my kids watch that I am absolutely in love with. I have cried probably a dozen times watching it. No exaggeration. You know, the good cries. And uh, it makes me laugh. I love it so much. It's called Bluey. So if any of you have seen Bluey, we're going to watch a little clip this morning from the episode called Copycat. So, imitation. We're learning about imitation this morning. Oh, man. Oh, man. Huh? Are you copying me? Are you copying me? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Like a monkey's butt. I am blue and I stink like a monkey's butt. Well, good that we can agree on that then. Time for my morning walk. Time for my morning walk. I like to walk really far. And I like to walk like this. Like those guys in the Olympics. <laughs> morning, Wendy. Do you know I like to smack my bum as hard as I can? Um, yes, imitation, copycat. Um, my kids watch that show, and they, 
they uh, imitate so many things from it. And if you didn't pick up on it, it's Australian. So everybody's got Australian accents. They use Australian lingo. I've heard my daughter use the term the loo, which is very odd. Um, when, she, when she's having an argument during a moment of play, she says, you're not playing properly. You're not playing properly. What four-year-old says that? Um, so, you know, when kids are around other people, they pick up all kinds of habits. They imitate what they see. And sometimes those things come out and they're very charming and lovely. Sometimes those things are not so charming and lovely. We are copycats by nature. And it's not just true of kids. We, we watch the people around us and we imitate them. That's how human beings act and operate. I watched uh, the show Scrubs when I was in very formative years, when I was a, a young adolescent, and I've been told numerous times that I'm just a walking Zach Braff, <laughs> which I don't know what to make of that. But um, in the Christian life, it's also very similar. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul wrote, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christian, the word Christian means little Christ. We are supposed to be little Christs running around, imitating the way of Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at how Christ set up an example, an example that was different than the common sense expectations of the culture. And then we're going to see the way that Paul, this new example, he imitated this new example of Christ. I'm going to call it the way of the cross. I'm going to call it a cross-shaped life. Paul imitated this cross-shaped life. And then he charged the Thessalonians to do the same. And hopefully, as we look at this idea of imitation, we can learn how to stop imitating the common sense assumptions of our culture, and we can begin to imitate the cross-shaped life of Jesus. So let's jump in. We are in Matthew chapter 21. We're just going to look at uh, verses 6 through 11 here. Here we are. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. Again, he and his disciples are moving into Jerusalem. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowds spread their cloaks on the ground, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So the crowd knows who Jesus is, and they're super excited that he's there, right? They're shouting and, and yelling and laying stuff down before him as he enters the city. They're treating him like a king. They think he's a king coming into this city. At the time, the Romans ruled the, the whole nation of Israel, and the Romans were not fun. They taxed heavily. They were brutal. They were brutal. And so as Jesus comes into the city, the people saw him as this rescuer. And the reason we know that is that word Hosanna that they're shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. They're shouting, save us. Please save us. 
son of David. So David was an old king, the quintessential king for Israel. And they see Jesus as this natural successor to the throne of David. Come save us, son of David. Now, I want to compare this to another moment in Israel's history. We're going to look at 1 Kings 1. And this is when another son of David was crowned king. This is Solomon. This is the moment that Solomon was crowned king. And I want us to look at some of the parallels that we see here. This is 1 Kings 1, 38 through 40. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule, and they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. This is actually reads pretty similarly, right? He rides in on a donkey. Jesus was on a colt. It's the son of David entering the city in triumph. There's shouting. There's rejoicing. There's a lot of parallels here. But the biggest difference comes in the next chapter. And I'm just going to show us three verses from the next chapter. This is after Solomon becomes king. This is 1 Kings 2, verse 25. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, who's one of his soldiers, son of Jehoiada, and he struck down Adonijah, and he died. Verse 29. King Solomon was told that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. Then Solomon ordered Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, go strike him down. Verse 46. Then the king gave the order to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck down Shemai down, and he died. And it ends, the kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. So, what does Solomon do? He takes the throne. Adonijah was a competitor to the throne and has him killed. The other two were enemies of his father David. He has him, them, them killed. He takes the throne, kills all of his enemies, and then exalts himself, right? But what happened after Jesus entered Jerusalem? He comes in, there's celebration, exaltation. The ex, what was their expectation? Jesus would come in, kill all of his enemies, take the throne, and exalt himself as king. That's not what Jesus did, is it? Jesus comes into town, he dies for his, his enemies. And he doesn't exalt himself as king. God exalts him as king over the universe. We have an expectation for what a king is to be. And Jesus comes in and subverts it. That's not the way. Jesus showed us the way of the cross. He showed us a cross-shaped life. And this is the way that Paul explains Jesus' cross-shaped life in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's saying, Jesus showed us another way, 
a different way, not a way of self-exaltation, self-aggrandizement, accumulating power, accumulating wealth. Jesus showed us the way of the cross. He showed us a cross-shaped life where I give up what looks good for me and my own self-exaltation for the sake of blessing others. That is what a cross-shaped life looks like. So Jesus gave us this example, and we're going to see how Paul himself emulated that way of the cross. And we'll see how he called the believers in the earliest church to imitate the cross-shaped life, and how he calls us to do the same today. So, Paul himself was a traveling preacher. He went town to town, and he told people about Jesus. This wasn't totally foreign to the ancient world. There were other people who did the same kinds of things, and they would espouse different kinds of philosophies, like Stoicism or any other number of philosophies that were around in the ancient world. And they were often called sophists, um, which just means a person who speaks wisdom. I'm in a, as I said, I'm in a class on Thessalonians, and my professor, Dr. Andy Johnson, wrote a book on um, a commentary on Thessalonians, which it's a little odd to be in a class with somebody who literally wrote the book on the subject. But um, we're going to look at a little bit he has to say about sophists from his commentary. Street corner orators and philosophers were often accustomed to speaking with effusive flattery when trying to butter up their audience in pursuit of money and honor. In fact, when an itinerant sophist came into a city, the first speech he was expected to give was one praising the audience. So here's what the expectation was. The sophist would come in, he'd tell everybody how great he thought they were. He might have a few little nuggets for him, but what was his goal? He wanted to get them to think he was great so that he could get their money so that he didn't have to do demeaning manual labor. In the ancient world, it was dishonorable to be engaged in manual labor. So the goal of the sophist was get yourself a following so that you can get their money so that you didn't have to do this demeaning manual labor. Um, demeaning manual labor aside, um, I do think this idea of flattery we are very familiar with. I think we see it um, on presidential campaigns, and it's, it's honestly pretty funny, I think, in my opinion. You have this, like, Harvard-educated, wealthy, city-dwelling, designer-suit-wearing guy who strolls into, or girl, who's, who strolls into uh, this rural part of the Midwest, right? And he says, I'm just like you. I know your struggles. I know what you're going through. Vote for me, and I'll help you. <laughs> I think we see this all the time, this way of just flattery, buttering people up so you can get what you want from them. Paul, that is the common sense way for, for a traveling preacher to do his thing. But Paul gave a different example. He gave a cross-shaped example of what it would be like to go to a new city and preach the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 6 and 9, we see this. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though, as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. 
We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. We preached. We preached the gospel of God to you. So you see, what do we see here? Uh, We see Paul coming into the city. He wasn't using flattery trying to butter them up. He was speaking truth, the truth of the gospel to them plainly. And he wasn't trying to earn a bunch of money from them. No, he worked night and day. He worked as a tent maker. Uh, He worked as a tent maker making tents for the Roman soldiers, which I'm sure was not a fun gig. He worked his hands to the bone so that he would not be a burden and he would not be beholden to the wealthy. Paul gives us a picture. Um, He doesn't go the common sense way of what he was supposed to do. Instead, he found a new way that imitated the cross-shaped life of Jesus. Another element um, of the ancient world that was pretty common is something called the client-patron system. Um, This client-patron system was very odd to me when I read about it. Basically, uh, you'd have this wealthy person, and he would just pay people to advance his honor and interests. So just sort of kind of an entourage, just hiring himself an entourage that would go around and and increase his honor. And this kind of would work all the way from the emperor on down. So the people that were the emperor's clients themselves would sort of get clients. Um, And we have the world's first pyramid scheme. Um, And down the pyramid it went. And again, this was a common sense way to avoid what the ancient world saw as dishonorable manual labor. You could get ingratiated to a patron. You didn't have to do that, which in the ancient world was everybody was engaged in manual labor. And this is something what Dr. Here's another thing that Dr. Andy Johnson says about the client patron system. Economic and social life was characterized by the dependency of clients upon their patrons for financial assistance or influence the patron might exercise on their behalf because of his higher social status. In return, the client might come to the patron's house in the morning to publicly honor him, would publicly speak out in support of his economic and social interests, and might be used by the patron on errands that would further those interests. Patrons themselves were clients of higher status patrons in a kind of pyramid scheme of relationship that topped out at the emperor. I actually really love this image. It's very funny to me to imagine like this wealthy patron waking up and going out to his balcony, and there's just this random, this crowd of people out there just cheering. Yay! Yay! You know, you get that kind of greeting in the morning, you're like, it's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great day. So this was just this common sense system in the ancient world of self-aggrandizement, self-promotion. It, it was just the way the world worked. And as we see in 2 Thessalonians, it seems like perhaps that church was buying into this common sense way of ancient world economic life. This is 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, again, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, 
but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. See that theme there again. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some of you among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies, like that pun, Paul. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. So the, it looks like the Thessalonians might have been imitating the common sense way of the economic structures of the ancient world. Find yourself a patron so you don't have to engage in this dishonorable manual labor. And Paul says, no, that is not the way that I showed you how to live. He says, we're not about self-promotion, pleasure, wealth, leisure. We imitate the cross-shaped life of Jesus, working hard so as not to be a burden and to contribute to the needs of others. So, we've looked at the common sense expectations of kings and how Jesus subverted that. We looked at the common expectations for traveling preachers and how Paul subverted that. And we saw how Paul taught the Thessalonians to not fall into the common sense economic ways of their world. Instead, he called them to imitate Christ's cross-shaped life, work hard for the sake of others. And we are called not to follow the common sense expectations of our world, instead to imitate Christ's cross-shaped life as Paul did. So we're going to move into some, some application here. I think the first point of application I have for us is just this idea that if an important part of our sanctification, our growing more and more like Jesus, is imitation, that's not something that happens in a closet. That happens in community. It happens when you're around other believers and you see how they have learned to imitate Jesus in new and unique ways. And as you see it, you imitate them. That only happens in the context of community. There's all kinds of other aspects of the Christian life that are very important. I, um, this large gathering here is really important. Um, reading your Bible is really important. But being in the context of other Christian believers is vital for our spiritual health and growth. So, if you have not gotten into one of our life groups, begun to share life deeply with other Christians, you are not entering into a vital, vital part of our growth and sanctification. That is life in the community of believers where you get to see the ways that they imitate Christ. And they get to see the ways that you've learned to imitate Christ. Um, one example I have for us this morning of that. Um, so a lot of you know Jordan. She leads, helps lead worship pretty often. And I have noticed she has this very unique way with her kids. Um, with my kids, there's so many times where uh, something happens that seems not a big deal, and they just collapse, and they lose it. I'm like, literally, that's spilt milk. We have a saying for this. We have a saying for this, and they're just collapsed. Um, and Jordan has this amazing way of entering into that moment with compassion and empathy. And she listens, and she asks questions, and she helps the child sort of navigate that moment. Um, it's a really cool thing to see. And um, I asked Jordan where she learned how to do that. 
And she said, when she was in Lawrence, she did some housekeeping work and nannying work for somebody, a woman in her church. And while she was doing that, what did she see? She saw that way that she was with her kids. And she said, I want to imitate that. So then when she became a mom, she started to imitate it. And I can't tell you how many times my wife has come home and said, I saw Jordan do this with her kids. I want to do it that way. There's just this powerful, powerful thing that happens when we are in community with one another and we see the cross-shaped lives of others. So the second point of application um, for us is we should challenge the common sense expectations of our economic world. We saw how Paul, Paul called the Thessalonians to challenge the common sense expectations of the ancient world for how you ought to conduct yourself economically. And I think we need to do the same. So my brother worked for Starbucks for a number of years. He managed some stores for them. And I asked him about it the other day, and he told me about how they would cover all of their expenses in the first four months of operating of the year. They would cover payroll, you know, rent, anything else that would, that would they had an expense that year. They, they met it in the fourth month. That meant eight months of just profit, which is like kind of blew my mind. And he told me that even though the stores were ridiculously profitable, he was constantly getting um, chided for having too many people on the floor at the same time, too many workers on the floor at the same time. He was constantly getting chided because he was giving out too many raises. And it kind of baffled him. He's like, we're very profitable. I don't have to work these people to the bone. I don't have to keep their wages down. But that was kind of the pressure that he felt. It seemed as though the system was treating workers like a dish rag, that you're trying to squeeze out the last bit of water out of them. And how does that make a worker feel? Not good. <laughs> the worker shows up, and, he's, and, he, and the worker feels like, well, this system doesn't care about me. I don't care about this, this, this system. I'm just going to show up and do as little work as I can, get my paycheck and go home, because this system does not care about me. I think we have to ask some serious questions. The reason why this company does that is because if they get ever-increasing profits quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter, then they get those investment dollars. And why does that happen? Because individual investors, the only thing they're looking at is how do I get the biggest return on my investment? So the system, top to bottom, is looking at one thing. How can I make the most money? Turns out, if we worship money, we get money. If we worship Jesus, we get peace and justice. So, I want to offer us three ways that we can challenge the common sense economic assumptions of our day. So, if, you're, if you maybe have some investments you're trying to save for retirement... I want to encourage us to look at something that I call value investment. This is where you're looking for investment plans that are looking at more than just how to make the most money. And you might say, does that such a thing exist? <laughs> it actually does. 
there's one plan I'm, I know of that's called the Timothy plan. And the Timothy plan, they, uh, they don't get as much return on their, their investment, although they do get return on their investment. But it's, they're looking at other things. They're asking questions that, are these companies aligned with our Christian values? Are they engaged in business in ways that are aligned with our Christian values? And they only invest in companies that they can give a wholehearted yes to on that. Value investing. I'm sure Timothy Plan is not the only one out there. So do a little research and engage in value investing. If you're an employer, or maybe you are sort of high up in a company and you have some decision-making authority, be on the lookout for when a businesses start to put the cart before the horse. And here's what I mean by that. A business exists to bless its customers and to bless their employees. Say that again. A business exists to bless its customers and bless its employees. Profit allows the company to continue to exist so that they can continue that goal. But sometimes companies get the cart before the horse and they think the purpose we exist is to make as much profit as we can. And so they say, maybe we can skimp a little bit on our workers here. And maybe we can skimp a little bit of value that we might produce to our customers. If you are a business owner or you're high up in a business, have an eye out for that. Jesus calls us to a cross-shaped life, and that involves how we run and operate our businesses. You exist to offer blessing to the world. We need to keep an eye on that. And if you're an employee and you see around you sort of the common sense expectation of show up and do as little as you can get away with and get your paycheck and go home, ask the Lord, why am I here? What can I do while I'm here to bless as many people as I can to live and imitate that cross-shaped life of Jesus? So um, I have a short little video for us here about a way that somebody challenged the common sense expectations of his economic life. Might take a minute here. Hi, Danny boy. You recently decided to pay your glorified clerk $70,000 annually. I was laughing for a couple days after hearing your nonsensical story. You should recognize the immense downside of your decision. I won't explain to you since you seem to have all the answers, young fella. <laughs> Leading up to the announcement, you know, I was having night terrors and waking up and thinking, forget this horrible idea, right? You're going to be better off if you don't do this. Effective immediately, we're going to put a scaled policy into place and we're gonna have a minimum uh, $70,000 pay rate. So I kind of expected after the announcement, you know, we'd have this thing for our company and it would be exciting for us and we just kind of move on. But I was struck at the interest of, of people outside and how people thought that this might be the start of a movement. People across the country have taken note of his bold move. Cut his own salary from nearly a million dollars to 70,000. I got tens of thousands of emails and electronic letters, but there's something about getting a handwritten or a typed out personal letter in the mail. And not just the positive ones, because frankly, I get just as much motivation 
out of people that say, you can't do this, this won't work, and actually try to heed their warning. Dan, this is actually a recipe for disaster. In a few weeks, everybody will be falling out about how much harder they work than the other guy who gets $70,000. I had three people that were clients of Gravity who basically told me, Dan, you just made my job harder. To hear that from those three people, it's really tough. This was a letter I got from my congressman, uh, the state of Washington House of Representatives. Dear Dan, I hope this letter finds you well. I'm writing today to thank you for your leadership as a business owner. I was delighted to read your question to your employees. Is anyone else freaking out right now? My hope is that I'll be right at the end of the day, but I actually don't think the idea is so good to guarantee that I'll be right. And I'm working as hard as I've ever worked to try to make it work. I'm renting out my house right now to try to make ends meet myself. I haven't made this little amount of money since I was in my early 20s. It helps that I'm 31 and don't have any kids, too. <laughs> and no girlfriend. No girlfriend to tell me I'm crazy. <laughs> so that's Dan Price. And if you didn't pick up on that, he cut his million dollar salary to 70,000 a year. And he raised all of the uh, salaries of his employees, employee, employees to 70,000 a year. Now, that's just an example. It's very easy to slip into legalism and say that's what everybody has to do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to pay attention. What's the common sense expectation here? And what's the way of the cross here? So, um, I want to end with a couple prayers uh, from a book that I found really helpful called Every Moment Holy. And the first prayer is a prayer for one who employs others. And the second prayer is a prayer for one who is employed. And I think it, these prayers give beautiful words to the kind of way that I'm talking about. So a prayer for one who employs others. Give me wisdom and mercy in my dealing with those I hire. May I be patient and gracious and slow to anger, recognizing always your image within those I employ. May I trust first in you as my provision that I might relate to others not as tools and commodities, but as fellow pilgrims and fellow beggars desperate for divine love. Teach me to seek the eternal good of my employees, even over my own profits. Let me relate to each of these, your unique creations, in light of the priorities, not of the kingdoms of this world, but of the better kingdom of heaven. And may I, by the graciousness of my interactions with these employees, establish a tone and a culture of kindness and grace that will permeate every room and corridor and hall of this building like a sweet perfume, like the aroma of Christ. May those who labor here do so with a sense of peace and purpose and calm, with a sense that they are valued and respected and appreciated. And may my dealings with them be a steady witness and invitation, becoming each to beckoning each to respond more fully to the call of your spirit. O Lord, be present in this place. Be at work in our work. Be at your labors in this place of our labor. And then a prayer for one who is employed. O Christ, who supplies my every need, I praise you for all provisions and for the means by which they are provided. For my current employment in the season of life, I give you thanks. By it, may I meet my own needs 
and contribute to the needs of others. Let me work and serve in a position with mindfulness, creativity, and kindness, loving you well by loving all whom I encounter here. Jesus, be ever-present as a mediator between me and my employer, between me and my supervisor and coworkers, and in all my dealings with others in this world. Remind me that my treatment of them is the strongest evidence of my affection for you. Grant me, therefore, the patience to listen to others, the humility to learn from them, the compassion to consider their needs as my own, and the grace to wear well in this place the name of my Lord, remembering that I arrive here each day as an emissary of your kingdom. Let me be an asset to my employer and superiors, working for their flourishing without resentment. Let me be a support to my peers, contributing to their advancement without jealousy. Let me be an encouragement to any I train or lead, affirming and equipping them without disdain. May the days of my employment here be meaningful. Use this chapter in my life to accomplish your ends, whatever they may be. May my presence here daily suggest your presence here. And may the outworking of the gospel be always evident in my work, that my service as an employee might be ever reckoned and, and received as service first rendered unto you, O Christ. So, the high calling. <laughs> Sometimes I read that and I get stressed out. Um, I think the reason that if you look at the letters of the Thessalonians, Paul opens them and ends them in the same way. He says, grace to you. And I think one of the reasons he says that is because we need some grace. Uh, these are high callings to live out, and we cannot carry them out on our own. We need the grace of God to carry them out. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to send us out. Father, thank you for this opportunity again to look at your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts, that we would be soft to the moving of your spirit, that we would, that we would receive your grace because we need it to live out this call of the way of the cross because we can't do it on our own. Father, we need you. So Father, give us that grace in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.